Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Best Pictures Podcast. I'm Ian, and this is Maggie, and this week we're doing Wings, the 1929 winner of Best Picture. Yeah, so Wings was actually made in 1927, and then the 1929 Academy Awards were both for 1927 and 1928. Um, Wings is also the only silent film we'll be watching, which will be interesting because it's very stylistically different in a lot of ways from things we'll watch later. Absolutely. And Wings was also nominated for its technical effects. So Mm -hmm. uh, something that we will definitely be getting into because there's some very cool things that they managed to do uh, with the technology of the time. Right. And at the time, too, it wasn't called the Best Picture Award. It was Most Outstanding Picture. Um, And the other two nominees for it were The Racket and Seventh Heaven, neither of which I've seen. I think we've both actually seen very little around that year. Um, so we don't have as much reference as maybe with some later movies. But there was also another award called Best Unique and Artistic Picture that was won by a movie called Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, um, which interestingly enough actually had a lot of other nominations as well because wings while it won outstanding picture and it won best engineering effects those were the only two things it was nominated for but it did win yeah it did which is why we watched it and um i think we both surprisingly enjoyed it absolutely um and because it's a silent film and it has that different format kind of something i wanted to talk about were the uh title cards that you see sort of in between scenes because this wasn't you know the earliest film but it's you know still kind of in that pre-sound era so they kind of use the title cards as to establish setting in a way that to me was like a play absolutely and it kind of followed that multi-act format yeah um but with the design of the title cards even it i appreciated the different visual cues of which setting you were in Mm -hmm. so um, you'd have the uh, German cross in yeah. certain title screens that well, would make sure that you knew you were talking about the the Air Force from the German side and seeing what they were doing. Yeah, well, and there's the really beautiful transition where they're talking about, I think it's the um, clouds of war or something, and you have the title scar- card being obscured by like the dark cloud moving over, which is a really kind of cool transition. Um, But they also use the title cards to kind of give characters inner thoughts because you don't have dialogue doing the job for you and you don't get a title card for everything the character says. You almost get like a summary of the conversation you just watch them silently have. Right. It's like the, the stuff that they can't act out they put on the title card yeah but it's also interesting because i think you know as you see movies progress and we'll see this in later movies and like sound definitely helps but i think they were still figuring out in a lot of ways how to use visual cues to like establish setting so in addition to kind of the silent film particulars of wings they did quite an amazing job with the effects that they were able to do especially given the time Mm -hmm. so i mean you don't even have sound forget anything like cgi everything's practical everything so uh one really cool factoid is that all of the actors um who were in the air did their own flying Mm -hmm. so when you see these fantastic in air shots it is the actors not a stunt double or anything of those that nature yeah when you see like the actors in the planes though they did also get a lot of 
help from like military pilots and stuff with filming the dogfight sequences and um one u.s airman actually did die in a plane accident yes, yes. but the fact that they were able to get cameras of those era into a plane in a way to film these fantastic reaction shots that really was able to showcase the actors um, is incredibly impressive. Well, and I think you have to really like hand it to Richard Arlen and Buddy Rogers, who are not only flying a plane, but acting at the same time. So like Richard Arlen is flying a plane, landing slash sort of crashing a plane while pretending that he's been shot and is dying. Yeah, it's quite impressive yeah. from an acting standpoint yeah but with the filming of the, this movie it, it was another interesting thing to get these effects they actually had to extend shooting over several months which for this era was very unusual yeah most I think... films were four to six weeks shot yeah. and done um whereas this was filmed on location in san antonio where they had to wait for perfect weather to get those beautiful cloud shots of all of the dog fights so you mm-hmm. can see the planes in contrast to the clouds um, yeah, I think this was a nine month shoot or like a eight month shoot, something like that, which was, I mean, it, 10 times as long impressive. as anything that was normal. Absolutely. Well, and all of the trench warfare shots that they do, they actually built out these trenches, exploded them, all of that with all of the extras on set. So these thousands of extras were brought in to do these epic long battle scenes with, you know, no CGI, which... For the time, it's yeah. no wonder that they spent, you know, $2 million in budget on this film for such a long, intricate, and impressive shoot. Well, and even during the bombing sequence, like, you have the building that, like, collapses on a bunch of people. Yes. So, again, all practical effects. I mean, I feel like at this time, you really, you weren't just an actor. You were also a stuntman or a stuntwoman. Like, Absolutely. you had Going to be able to do everything. Which, I mean, speaking of the actors, I want to talk a lot about the performances because, I mean, they are very much silent movie performances. They're exaggerated. You know, people are having to convey things. They don't really have dialogue to do it with. But I also thought there were some very, like, nice, subtle moments in there, too. Um, I'm thinking in particular at the beginning where Claire Bow and Buddy Rogers are, like, working on that car and she paints the shooting star on it. And like the look on his face when he sees it and he recognizes it was like very nice and very genuine and didn't feel over the top in the way that I think a lot of silent movie performances can sometimes feel and like moments in this movie felt as well. Absolutely. And I really did enjoy many of the close-up shots of the actors' reactions. So I, I think in that particular scene that Maggie just referenced, they did have a close shot where you see the transformation of his face mm-hmm. um, from this kind of bewilderment to, to recognition, which yeah. was quite nice. Well, and I really enjoyed uh, Buddy Rogers and Clarabo in particular. I loved like the energy in their performances and then like I said they were able to kind of bring it back every now and then I think Clarabelle also had some nice moments like there's a whole scene that I think we'll get to where we discuss um where they're in like the club in Paris and like some of her facial expressions were very nice there oh yes when she was competing with the one um I she was definitely coded as a prostitute don't know if she actually was in the club yeah. in Paris. But Clara's jealousy with uh, Buddy Rogers is yeah. <laughs> extremely evident and definitely appreciated the more subtlety, subtle parts of that particular. Well, and I mean, we should just go ahead and talk about that sequence because I think there's quite a lot to talk about. Because first of all, you have that beautiful tracking shot going yes. through the tables. 
And I think that was one of the first kind of like that. Um, well, and, and again, with moving, putting the uh, putting the cameras in planes, the ability of them to pull off this tracking shot to go over the tables with cameras of that era, which were not petite yeah, no. <laughs> by any means, um, is incredibly impressive. Maybe helped that they didn't have to record sounds; so they could yeah. just move things yeah. willy nilly. Well, they and I wanted. mean, I haven't seen a whole bunch of movies from that era, but I would be interested to kind of know. If there are other movies that have as dynamic of camera movements as Wings has, because it's not constant. I mean, a lot of times you do get the, it's a camera, it's obviously set up one place and the action is happening in front of it, kind of like a play again or like a vignette. Um, But you do have these really cool moments like that tracking shot or like some of the transitions and camera movements that feel very modern. Absolutely. And I mean, even to get a little bit ahead of ourselves, when you compare some of the shots in um, a Broadway melody to the shots in this film, the Broadway melody seemed more static overall to me. Yeah, this I think we'll definitely talk about that a lot in that episode. Because spoiler alert, we watched both those movies and then recorded the episodes. <laughs> um, Provide some context. Yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that scene to kind of in the club in Paris was also very interesting from kind of like a historical social standpoint because we see Clara Beau get in trouble for being found in Buddy Rogers' room when she basically like tries to like get him away to get him sobered up because they're being called back to the front um and oh, she... she didn't do a thing exactly exactly but they uh, end up sending her home from the women's ambulance driving unit um because of her unseemly behavior um but kind of uh, another tidbit about that scene so wings is uh is it the first or one of the first movies to include nudity I believe it was the first. Okay. So not only do you get to brief, well, get to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's maybe not, not the best phrasing no. for that. Um, um, but like a- in the scene in the Paris club, uh, Claire Beau is changing at one point and somebody walks in. And so you do get like a very brief glimpse of her topless. But um, there's also a scene in a drafting office where in the background there's a door that people are coming through and it's like where the medical checkup is happening so you just seen like a line of butts <laughs> that was a little bit jarring and surprising but i definitely set the stage for that scene with uh, mr shrimp yeah the comic relief of this film <laughs> yeah he definitely is so there's a character um herman schwimpf who they used to kind of um show some of the anti-German and anti-German American sentiment at the time where he has a very German name and he comes in to enlist and the enlisting officer is like, we don't want you in our American army because like you're German and that's such a German name. And he has that tattoo of the American flag on his arm that when he like, he waves his arm, it looks like the flag's (laughs) waving. And then everyone's like, Oh, a true Patriot. And it happens multiple times. Cause obviously a tattoo is what makes you a true Patriot. (laughs) Exactly. It's, I think a very simplified and kind of, What's the right word? Like, it simplifies kind of what that sentiment was in the country at the time and makes it 
seem like, oh, it was there, but these people were patriots. It's all good. And it doesn't really go into kind of what a tough time that was for some people. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think it's interesting that they give a nod to that because, again, this movie was made in 1927. So like nine years after the armistice so people are still very cognizant of world war one and obviously it had such a great impact on history and people all over the world so it's interesting that you you see them kind of give a nod to the uglier side of it but they definitely gloss over it a bit yeah it wasn't as political as maybe we would expect but yeah i well i shouldn't say expect because that would be more modern way to do that (laughs) yeah that's true like it's it's, they do a nod to it but the movie as a whole is still extremely like patriotic and it's like oh these young red-blooded american boys who go off to war and they fight over this like young um, classic american girl or one of them does at least yes yeah And then, you know, the tragedy of war is that one of them dies and is shot down by his friend, which I I can't wait to talk about that part. I got some (laughs) thoughts on that part. Absolutely. Okay, so as a quick regression back to the scene in the not brothel. Mm -hmm. um, I just keep calling it a club. I feel like that's the best analogy. That works. (laughs) But would you call that one of the first makeover scenes? Maybe. Like I said, I haven't seen enough films around that. But yeah. Well, also, can we point out that, like, Clarabeau's uniform is adorable. Well, but you know, it's not a sparkly dress. I know, it's true. <laughs> Which, But I thought it was a, definitely a product of the time in this situation where you had uh, the, the French grandmother character who was giving the random lady in the bathroom who's like no i will take you under my wing let's steal one of these dancers dresses for you but it was for all of the wrong reasons (laughs) at least for the modern modern sensibility and that whole theme continued into the bedroom where clara gets reprimanded for being naked yeah and that one guy is so creepy about it too it was supposed to be funny. It was, it was not funny. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it was hilarious in the 20s, but in 2018, I was like, I'm so uncomfortable about this. Yes, yes, agreed. But um, yeah, speaking of special effects, you have the the bubbles that Buddy Rogers' character is very... Yes, not going to lie, I was very annoyed with him in the damn bubbles. <laughs> it went on a long time. Well, but it was a very interesting effect, and I'm curious to know how they did that bubble effect. So continuing with the, the performances of these actors, I think uh, both the two leading men managed to do a really great job at showing the evolution of their particular friendship throughout the film. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's really kind of what the film is about. Like, you do have sort of these competing love stories going on a little bit with Sylvia and David and then of course with Mary Clarebo's character pursuing Buddy Rogers's character Jack but it really is about the friendship that forms between uh Jack and David which starts out not a friendship at all exactly I really enjoyed the scene where uh Sylvia and uh was that Jack, I believe, was in the swing with her swinging. Uh, so David, was, Richard Arlen's character. Yes, yeah. yes, it was David. So they're, yeah. they're swinging in the swing, which was a really cool shot from a technical perspective. Um, but David comes... I'm or sorry, Jack. 
I'm getting people confused. Jack comes <laughs> and happens. steals Sylvia to take her on his car, which felt very dated again. <laughs> Here, here's the thing, though, that it kind of confused me. So obviously later, Sylvia's putting together the locket for David. And um, Jack comes in and thinks it's for him and just, like, takes it, which, first of all, like, slow your roll. <laughs> but, um... Anyway, uh, it was so weird to me that, like, obviously Sylvia loves David, but, like, when Jack rolls up in the car and is like, Sylvia, let's go, she is up off that swing, like, super fast, and it's just like, yeah, okay. Was she up off that swing? I thought that, uh... She goes with him. Jack, like, stole her. (laughs) Like, picked her up and was like, let's go, baby. (laughs) Oh, wait, you're right. (laughs) You're right. I think she's, like like does go though but he does like over i think david like tries to get her to stay and jack comes and over and is like which is very funny <laughs> no i what was what was my note for that i think it was okay you're literally gonna steal this woman off a swing come on now and then poor clara oh this was another shining moment for clara bow when she sees jack and sylvia driving mm-hmm. off and She's not hysterical by any means, but you see how much she's hurt by the fact that she's completely flying under Jack's radar. Yeah, well, and I think it's very interesting, too, how Clara Bow's character is juxtaposed to the character of Sylvia. So Sylvia still has, like, the very long hair. She's in kind of these, like, longer white dresses. And then Clara Bow, who is, of course, full-on flapper, because... I mean, Clara Bow was the iconic quintessential flapper girl. And so there's kind of that and then their demeanor, Sylvia's very like kind of reserved and like serious. I and do. then Clara Bow is very outgoing. But then I think at the same time, I'm not sure how much that was to juxtapose their characters or parallel them to the male characters. Well, and that is exactly what I was going to jump in and say yeah. is you see Sylvia's characters being very prim and proper and worthy of... Um, David's old money. Well, they're both very serious. And I think you see that too in kind of like the way they leave for war. So like David's saying goodbye to his parents is extremely serious. The mother and father both cry. You know, he's got that childhood bear, which I feel like was probably a choking hazard for a child. It's very small. (laughs) Um, Well, it was dangerous to be a child in the (laughs) days, so. True fact. Um, But you see a very serious and sad send off for him um which i think kind of foreshadows him dying at the end um because i went into the movie i knew vaguely that one of them died and when that scene happened uh and the mom's like bring the bear back to me i was like oh he's the dead one but then i thought the movie later on was trying to trick me and i was like why this is, is this movie this is I well know. before george R. R. martin well, you're then, not gonna get tricked <laughs> then i was like yeah this movie is 1927 like i don't think they're trying to pull one over on me but, uh, and then, you know, Jack's send-off is very upbeat. His parents are just kind of like, come on, let's go. And you have, like, Mary waving at the fence. And it's just, it's not as serious. It's not as somber. There isn't kind of this feeling of, like, weightiness and gloom to it that yes. there is with David's. I mean, Jack and David are definitely foils in that sense. Mm-hmm. And I think it does a good job to emphasize both those characteristics of each of them when you have them playing against one another. Yeah. Um, in in some scenes later on i do love that they become best friends so quickly so like jack's always trying to like kind of undercut david in basic training because he's like 
we're both fighting over Sylvia and all this stuff. But then they, like, get into one very brief fist fight. And then, like, they hug at the end and now they're best friends. I think the note I have is love at first fight. (laughs) I was really pleased with that. And also very emblematic of the time. It's like, oh, let's just duke it out like men and yeah, in the end. Yeah, exactly. Um, But then, of course, I mean, they address it later when David knows what's going on, knows that Jack's in love with Sylvia and doesn't broach the subject, kind of just like lets it be, I think. And And then until he doesn't. (laughs) Well, until what happens is the picture, I think, falls out of the locket and David sees the reverse side of it and sees that it's like written for him, that like the note Sylvia wrote on the back of the photo is for him and like doesn't want Jack to see that. Because I think he's he's just worried about Jack like in that moment and being like heartbroken. And I mean, mm-hmm. they're they're away at war. Like it's obviously something they would have to deal with going back. But I think you know there's an idea or like a concept of get through the war, deal with that when you get home. Because I mean, you know, again, nine years after World War One, people were still dealing with that, and there wasn't even you know a huge concept of. PTSD at the time you kind of had the concept of shell shock but people didn't really understand kind of psychological effects of war and I think this movie sort of shows a little bit of that again though there is like a glossiness to it there is I mean in some of the reading I was doing though this was supposed to be anti-war to an extent yeah and I mean I think you get that at the end but so it's still like the silver screen <laughs> yeah so i think this is a good time to talk about david's death so you know of course it's jack that ends up shooting him yes. down because poor david has survived one plane crash stolen a german plane and is now trying to fly back across allied lines which i mean granted not the best plan oh, no. maybe as soon as he picked up that german plane i knew exactly where he was headed yeah because <laughs> it how would you expect an American fighter to see that that is an American soldier in a German plane? They were best friends, Ian. He should have known. <laughs> well, too bad they're not psychic. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, and of course you have Jack who's sort of just enraged because he thinks the Germans have killed his friend. So he ends up killing his friend himself. And everyone's like, oh, it was the war that did this. I think David's mom says that later. She's like, you know, I tried to hate you, but, like, this is war, and it's terrible. And I think that's where you get, like, the really strong anti-war message. Absolutely. And the house into which uh, David crashed, um, the the scene of the mother and child praying at their outside altar of sorts. So I, I believe it was a crucifix that they were praying to. And the fact that that's the only thing standing on that wall of the house after well, the plane crashes into it. Well, and you have, it's right next to the large military cemetery because you have the yeah. shot of Jack getting out of his plane and there's just the headstones in the background, um, which was one of the more powerful visual symbols I thought that I was in this movie. But I do have to say, David's dying words to Jack are, it's not your fault. Let's put you and I in this position. <laughs> if I had crashed my plane behind German lines, stolen a German plane, and was flying it back, which granted wouldn't be my best plan, but was somehow doing that, and you were the one who shot me down and killed me, my last words to you would not be, it's not your fault. <laughs> they would be something along the lines of, what the fuck, Ian? 
<laughs> so I guess good on David, but like, I'd have died bitter. Well, I mean, wouldn't we all? <laughs> <laughs> but I do, that death scene was very impactful, I thought. Mm-hmm. So uh, a, another movie first, first kiss between two men mm-hmm. in that scene, which was interesting. But it, it's still one of those platonic, like, you are my brother in arms and in planes. yeah like i think Um, you know some of the stuff i read is that some people you know have more recently interpreted that as a little bit more than a platonic friendship but i think you know given the time that the movie was made that that's a difficult read completely agree well and it only serves to add emotional height to that scene Mm -hmm. and i think it'd be very interesting to see some sort of remake where maybe that was the relationship or maybe i mean (laughs) depending on how it was treated yes and i think it really does you know show you kind of how far their relationship came because you know you started with like jack tripping david and i'm getting in a fist fight and now like you know one of them's dying and they're they're, heartbroken yeah they're heartbroken telling each other like how much they mean to each other but then of course you can't end on that note so they get back Claire Bow gets her man. Thank goodness. I, I, okay, I, I'm very torn on that that story arc ending because multiple times through that movie, I was thinking to myself, Clara, no, dump his drunk ass. He does not deserve all of this effort that you were putting into this. But she still sticks yeah, by it, which I, felt old-fashioned. But uh, It definitely was. And I think kind of the difference is, like, first off, I don't think they were in a relationship throughout the movie until the end i think he was very much like this is my good old friend mary and then david's like um dude you love her and then he goes and dies but he drops that <laughs> well, truth bomb. that's what he that's what he needed to do to get jack to realize it right yeah basically um but i i like the parallel because you know early on when they're talking about the car being called the shooting star and they like paint the shooting star on the car um you know clara has the line (laughs) yeah well that's cool too but um clara has that line that's like hey you know like when you see a shooting star you get to kiss the girl you love and he's like good idea gonna go find sylvia (laughs) but in the end he yeah exactly and it's like a very nice parallel there well and the fact that the first time it was a painted star and the second time it was an actual shooting star was also a nice poetic ending yeah so i think i think it's a good ending although i think i have in one of my notes after jack has shot down his friend and then had to go basically like talk to his friend's parents about it i was like jack is psychologically ruined now and so it was a little weird that the end of the film is him just like big smile on his face like cuddle up in the car with clara (laughs) (laughs) so moving in a little bit different direction i i can say that i very much enjoyed the score uh, i did too and I know it was originally orchestrated exclusively for this film. Um, and I think I watched the version that was restored. I think that's what in I the watched past too. Ten years or so. Um, so they actually went in and reorchestrated all the music again. So I believe it was the same score, but recorded more modern, like in more modern times. So quality was really great, which was awesome. Yeah. Um, but I really appreciated what they did with some of the different themes um from the music so Mm -hmm. one particular one was from mendelssohn's uh midsummer night's dream and that that was what was played during the dogfights with the germans uh, repeatedly and so i really enjoyed being able to play something just by hearing it and that also 
they were able to kind of begin some of these musical tropes that we see mm-hmm. in later films. So when like they use the very patriotic music whenever there's anything. Absolutely. So I think I heard over there yeah. being played, which was a uh, very apropos for yeah, <laughs> a yeah. world war one. That, that's used a lot. Um, and I mean, even simple things like using the funeral organ, uh, well, organ like ball. Clara had her own theme. Which yes. I really liked her theme. And I almost wonder if, because we talked about, you know, with the um, title cards and kind of the way they establish setting being a lot like a play. I wonder if kind of orchestrating movies and especially feature length films and sort of giving characters themes. I wonder if that's something that is very like stage related as well. I'm sure. Well, I'm sure it's deliberate. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm sure it wasn't by accident, but I just wonder if that's kind of a form and a practice that moved from stage and, you know, like opera and stuff like that into uh, movies. Absolutely. Well, and it, I, I will confess that this is the first silent film that I've watched. And so I, I definitely see the stage parallels mm-hmm. and um, the music in acting to a lesser extent since you do have words on the stage <laughs> yeah um but yeah the the score was was fantastic and i think the last thing like topic i wanted to touch on was the costuming and like hair and makeup so this movie filmed in 1927 technically set in 1917 1918 ish the only person whose hair and clothing seems period appropriate is Sylvia and maybe David's parents. All of the other clothing is contemporary. And like, as I said, Clara Boa's full on flapper. <laughs> I'm curious if they had uh, the dramaturgs for this particular production to go in. Well, and so check what, I, what I had read was that they were like, the director was so incredibly focused on all of the new technical stuff they were trying that they just like didn't pay attention to costuming as much. And apparently Clara Bow hated all of her costumes and would like alter them herself, which drove the costumer crazy. Definitely made a couple dresses more low cut is what I've heard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like the makeover scene, like she goes full on flapper with that sequin sort of like shifts dress and of course her hair um and i'm curious to know about the military uniforms as well i'm sure hers was very much like updated i mean hers probably wasn't even like an actual military uniform it was probably like costume designed it was very stylish that's what makes me think that um but i'm curious about the men's military uniforms because i could see where maybe they used like 1920s era like uniforms and like the stun doubles and the extras a lot of them were military men so they were probably just wearing normal uniforms but um i could see military uniforms maybe not changing as much or as drastically as civilian fashion so i wonder if those are still more accurate so are there any other like major topics you wanted to cover or we can just kind of jump into our more interesting notes I'm good for some uh, more interesting notes here, because I know we both had some funny commentary along the way. (laughs) Yeah, I think when this isn't so much funny, but I did note that I had to pause a lot to take notes on this one, because you didn't have the audio to listen to, to like continue with the story going. And I was afraid of missing stuff. Like Mm -hmm. if I looked away to like write something down, I was afraid that like, oh, I'm going to miss something that's key visually. Or like, I'm going to miss a title card. 
Absolutely. Well, I mean, that's a, a silent film thing. You're expected yeah. to give your undivided attention to the screen, yeah. which from that era. On the I other hand, though, if I wanted to write down a quote, didn't have to rewind like 10 times to make sure I'd heard it correctly. <laughs> Pros and cons. Yeah. So I know some of the stuff they were doing with the Mad River. I loved that scene of David running up this little creek. And I'm like, is that really a mad river? Because it looks like a mad trickle to me. <laughs> well, people just running in general. I think it was, it must have been like the film speed. Yeah. But they it, looked like they were running so fast and so manically. Oh, see, in the trench warfare scenes, I thought the exact opposite. It was, they were just very casually sauntering up to the German machine guns and getting mowed I down. I mean, that's from, from what I've read this is not entirely inaccurate yeah but this would have been like when they're going to go the uh, do the push to try and yeah. move the frontier forward so <laughs> i understand that all the extras were probably tired from a grueling filming session mm -hmm. in san antonio texas which is not a cool place no. at all but it was still like <laughs> when i did like the the overhead shot of them blowing holes in the barbed wire that was another really good shot that i liked Kind of yeah. with that trench warfare. That whole trench warfare scene, was, I felt, was very well done. Granted, well, I wasn't in World well, War Well, the director had taken, supposedly took a lot from, like, his experiences in World War One, And I think you can kind of tell that, like, him and, of course, I think it was Richard Arlen that was, like, a pilot who actually served. Buddy Rogers had to actually learn how to fly to do his mm -hmm. stuff. But I think Richard Arlen had served as a pilot and already knew. So you can tell, you know, in the way that some things were shot, at least it seems convincing to me. Again, Absolutely. I was also not in World War One. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> and now to jump to the very end one more time, there was this very brief shot of the souvenir that Jack had cut out of the tail of the plane that David was flying. And you see him trample over the canvas cutout and some goggles, fly, the flight goggles. So I thought that was kind of a fun little, okay, we're trampling over what we've done, this war, we're done with it, we're not coming back. Yeah. Um, sort of symbolic thing, which I, I definitely enjoyed. Oh, I do have a note about Sylvia's body language in the locket scene. So I think going back to kind of those like nice, subtle performances that weren't as overblown, her very much like she's like kind of like leaning away from Jack and like stepping away from Jack and he grabs the locket and she's like like doesn't snatch it back from him but you can tell that she's kind of like I don't know what to do about this and Jack certainly isn't gonna back down no Jack's just gonna steamroll everybody like oh my goodness uh, oh and then I also have kind of on the difference between their send-offs I do have one note that then says is David's mom lecturing him from a freaking list She's like got like a note that she seems to be reading off of. Well, his mother did seem to be prone to strong emotions. I mean, I don't know so if maybe it was she needs to be organized. Maybe maybe it was supposed to show like kind of the formality of like his life and his upbringing again to like juxtapose him with Jack. But I was like, really, you had to write it all down on a list and be like, okay, gripe number one with you. <laughs> Second thing I want you to not do. Well. They were a really rich family. She probably didn't raise her son. Like, yeah. I'm sure it was a very formal familial relationship, if that's not too much of an oxymoron. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I almost started crying when Dave was saying goodbye to the dog. Like, that's that's what broke me. The dog. No. <laughs> didn't break me. <laughs> Ugh. Cat person. Um, oh, and then I have the 
the quotes from the parents uh that bear isn't big enough to do much of the fighting for you dave and then him saying maybe it'll bring me luck my note next to that is it won't <laughs> well it will because you know he was shot down when he didn't have his bear you saw Shrunk oh you know running you're right. out to the plane to give it to him you're right so should have had that bear exactly bears save you from germans that's that's the <laughs> model of this that's this the story. moral of this particular story <laughs> keep your bears not that like war is bad and terrible and sometimes you accidentally shoot your friend down after he's stolen a german plane but the bears will bring you luck and protect you against germans so obvious maggie so obvious <laughs> it's a good thing you're here to tell me these things i'd never figured them out on my own <laughs> Oh, also, I love that they were like, they told us not to run out if there's a plane crash. Cut to everyone running out. Yes. I also, enjoyed how that was like a ghost of Christmas future moment when the one guy died as soon. Yeah, as... and they, they reuse that shot later. They do. They um, do. But uh, I was expecting a longer payoff on that because like that's Gary Cooper. It was like, I think... It was just a cameo, this basically. Was, this was, yeah, a cameo from him. And this was the... They were saying that, like, this is the role that kind of, like, was part of his big break. And I was like, but he's barely on screen. But, like, I was expecting him to be introduced and to be a more major character and then for him to crash later. But he, like, is introduced, tells them, like, something, leaves the tent and immediately crashes. Horrors of war. Yeah, I know, but I was... Ex I don't know. I feel like in... This is kind of, again, where you're seeing, like, the start of film and storytelling techniques that we would see more commonly today. I was expecting a longer payoff on that. Like, I think if this movie had been made, you know, 90 years later, 100 years later, you would see him be introduced, be a major part of the story, mm -hmm. and then crash in, like, a training sequence when they're over in France. Mm -hmm. make the emotional impact greater yeah but as a counterpoint to that though the whole idea of flight and this warfare especially after world war one was kind of a new and bizarre and off-putting thing for many people even though there was major fascination with uh flight after charles Lindbergh's successful flying around the world in that time um i think just the oddness of having all these people flying it was enough to really make that more impactful for viewers of that time yeah um something else visually that i thought was interesting because of course this is not just silent but also black and white is they have like a very distinct night filter that's like bluish well and i struggled with that too i was curious so in the version that i watched it goes between a more silver-toned and a more gold-toned mm -hmm. uh, color scheme um, for the black and white. And so I, I'm trying to decide whether that was deliberate or it was really just them salvaging footage that they could. Because this film was actually lost for a long time until they were able to find a print somewhere in France. Yeah. Um, as far as like the night filter thing, I think that was a distinct choice because it was very clearly when stuff would have been happening at night, mm -hmm. I think. But yeah, that that was interesting. And like the first time it happened, I kind of thought the same thing. I was like, oh, it, did this prank go bad or something? But like, then I was like, oh, no, I think that's supposed to be like a night filter. Definitely which is... doable. They still do that in films today. Yeah, they do. But I think it's, I don't know, it was very, like very stark. And I think in a lot of older, like black and white movies, it's not so much like a night filter as it is just like a lighting change. 
So like that was interesting to me that it's like maybe I mean they probably shot it during daytime or something like that and then put the night filter over it. But I thought it was interesting that instead of doing something like purely with lighting, yeah, they did they... something more deliberate with the actual filming, mm -hmm. which I mean fits in with the rest of the film in terms of the technical prowess that they showed. Yeah, that they would rely more on like a a technical piece or like a technical not prop, but you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Um, also, so I have this very long rambling note that says, um, is Kellerman and his flying circus a reference I should know? Because I was thinking like maybe it was like a real World War One reference. And then immediately after, oh, no, should have waited for titles to tell me. <laughs> because it's not like they use a character from the film. So yeah, Kellerman definitely wasn't a character, but the flying circus was definitely a thing during World War One. Yeah, it's like the plane. Wasn't yeah, because they were colorfully yeah. decorated, and so it's like, oh, here comes the circus. Which is interesting because super easy to see. Well, when you're flying by visuals only, you kind of have to be good to see. <laughs> Because also these planes are not going very fast. Yeah, I know. I was just thinking from like um, an anti-aircraft standpoint. Oh, absolutely. Um, oh, something else I noted was I was wondering kind of how much this influenced the 2001 Pearl Harbor movie. Um, I don't know if you've seen it. It's not very good. But um, part of the premise is it's like these two pilots who are really close friends and they like kind of fight over this girl for a while and one of them dies. That's vaguely what I remember. I just... I was just wondering, like, if that had any sort of influence on the storyline or if maybe, you know, the idea of two guys who become friends and then fight over the same girl is just like a very I mean, the normal universal. Trope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this it's could, a very big trope. Again, could be a, one of the first love triangle tropes in film. Because that, that's one thing. So many of the technical and storytelling related tropes that we see in this film. I know we probably thought they were cliché. So the yeah. Wurlitzer organ in the death scene, for example. I have to remember that this, in all likelihood, was the first time some of this stuff was done. Yeah, so. and I think that's something that we'll have to be cognizant of with all of the films we watch, especially the early ones, because we are starting at the beginning and working our way to present. So we're going to see the start of these cliches, and we're going to see the growth of them, and we're going to see kind of them becoming prominent and becoming common. And so I think with the early films, it's important to go in with a very open mind and yes. realizing that like, you know, David having the sad, like his parents being sad and being like, bring this bear back to me. And then him being the one who died, like to me, I'm like, oh, well, it's obvious, but like maybe it wasn't at the time. Exactly. Well, and if anything, that's a testament to how good these films were is that the storytelling techniques that they set up are still in use even if we find them to be yeah. overwrought today <laughs> yeah oh another note that i had i got very upset when they stole those women's parasols in paris they were just like driving horse carriages and then being rowdy americans and they stole these two women's parasols and i looked like nice parasols and i was like don't steal ladies parasols <laughs> like how rude i got very upset about that actually I mean, young soldiers will be young soldiers, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I also really liked, there's the scene where the guy died in the bomb barrage on the roadside. And when that guy realizes he's dead and he stamps out the cigarette. And just, yes. I thought that was very nice symbolism. And not overdone. I think that was kind of the surprising part with this movie was I kind of went in expecting... You know, wrongly expecting almost everything to be overdone and almost everything to be 
bigger than life, but it wasn't. And I think there were some extremely nice points. Yes. I also have a note where when David was like dying and there was that French officer that's like, I've seen this before. It's too late. When Jack was like, go get a doctor. I was like, still go get a doctor. Like, you're not a doctor. You don't know. Well, you don't know, but you know. But like, that doesn't matter. Like, try. You're talking about the end of grueling year years months at least of trench it would have been years for that guy i'm sure but because he was a french officer i believe but like still like just go get a doctor like uh made me very upset too well you know it could be the futility of war coming through with that i guess oh also at the end i'm pretty sure they made like the hair at jack's temples gray they definitely did okay at first i wasn't like sure but like it was off-putting because this, yes. this happened in a period of a month or two, which yeah, you could argue that maybe I mean like the shock everything would have been death. roughly a year, which I think was kind of what they were going at is that like war and this experience has aged him and like made him grow up before mm-hmm. he should have and stuff like that. But like it it was very visually off-putting and very distracting because it took me a while to decide whether or not they'd actually done that. <laughs> I did. Li- Ultimately, I did like that, though, because it's just reinforcing the idea that when you come home from war, you're a completely different person and you've changed and you've seen things. And even though they didn't have PTSD, it's like, here's this visual outward representation of uh, the emotional scars that he's going to bear for Mm -hmm. the rest of his life. Yeah. So overall, I liked it more than I was anticipating going into it. Same. I would say personally that some of the dogfight scenes were much more drawn out than I was hoping for. But yeah. it really did show off all of the amazing effects that they were able to, to do. Yeah, and I mean, I think that probably had a lot to do with this winning Outstanding Picture or Best Picture um, was those technical advancements, um, you know, as well as having a story that was poignant. And like mm-hmm. there were times that I teared up. I think, you know, to a certain extent it didn't necessarily like delve into some of the impact and the psychology and some of the emotion that like I would have necessarily liked. But also if you put yourself in the position of viewers of that time, exactly. they just lived through that. Exactly. So, they didn't so need that helping hand. Yeah. They, they knew the context much better than you or I do now. Yes. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, overall I did like it. I can't really say whether or not I think something else should have won over it. I haven't, seen really anything else from that time period but definitely worthy of best picture yeah um and then so another part of this podcast is we will be keeping lists kind of ranking the best pictures so that kind of at the end we can say what we think the best best picture is so surprise Um, this is at the top of our list right now (laughs) yeah it's number one it's the only one so it's um our our number one favorite best picture at the moment and we'll see you know if it stays there if it stays near the top kind of where it's going to end up ranking at the end unscientific but still fun yeah it's based (laughs) purely on our personal opinions and it would probably change based on what day we looked at the list (laughs) how we're feeling when we watched the movie etc no kidding so well with that thank you for listening through our wonderful long-winded conversation (laughs) on wings um hope to have you back for next week's episode Uh, talk about a broadway melody yeah so it'll be we'll releasing every two weeks or two episodes a month um we'll 
usually tweet out before an episode drops or post on our Instagram. Speaking of which, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram. We are at Best Pictures Pod on both. If you would like to tell us in more depth how wrong we are or preferably how right we are, but I know how the internet works, so not going to bank on that. Um, <laughs> you can email us in at bestpicturespodcast at gmail.com. All righty. And with that, I'm Ian. I'm Maggie. And this has been Best Pictures. Thank you for listening.